You're listening to part two of this week's episode centering on the Guggenheim's current show, Art and China After 1989. Earlier this week, we sat down with two of the show's curators to discuss the controversy around the exhibition, which erupted at the end of September and eventually resulted in three pieces being removed from the show amid allegations of animal cruelty. Here's that conversation. Hello, I'm Isaac. Welcome to the Artsy Podcast. On September 20th, the New York Times published a preview of the Guggenheim's latest show, Art in China After 1989, Theater of the World. One particular work immediately ignited a firestorm of controversy. Titled Dogs That Cannot Touch Each Other, the work was a video of a 2003 performance organized by artists Peng Yu and Sun Yuan in which restrained pit bulls bred for dogfighting were placed opposite each other on treadmills. Five days after the Times article, the museum announced that it would be pulling the work from the show, citing threats of violence. They also removed the live animals slated to be a part of the show's titular work, Theater of the World, and took down another video work involving pigs called A Case Study of Transference. Right now, I'm back with Guggenheim curator Alexandra Monroe and director of the Ulan Center for Contemporary Art, Phil Tanari, who also curated the Guggenheim exhibition, to discuss the controversy. One thing I wanted to ask you both is there's obviously been a lot of controversy, a lot of discussion, a lot of debate around these works. But to my mind, at least, there's been an absence of a discussion of the actual work's meaning and their context in which they were created and are now being exhibited. And I was wondering if you could perhaps provide some of that. I mean, what would you say to someone who has heard a little bit about this, hasn't rush to judgment, but wants to hear, you know, about these works and, and what they mean and why they are the way they are. Thank you for asking that question, Isaac. I think we have to recall that this fury uh, began uh, the day after a New York Times preview written by the New York Times Bureau Chief Jane Perlez appeared online on September 20th. And within 12 hours, the petition on change.org was filed Um, That petition now has close to 800,000 signatures. The petition, just for comparison's sake, also on change.org, calling for the trial as a terrorist of the American who killed Heather Mayer, has under 300,000 signatures and has been up for many weeks longer. The fury, the content, um, and the tenor of the threats that came through, not only on the call of that petition to take down these three works, but also through a barrage of other forms of social media and direct contact with the curators, with the directors, trustees of the museum, forced us into an impossible situation where we had to uh, uh, make some impossible choices in very close consultation with the artists. Of course, what was missing from that entire two weeks of debate was confrontation with the work itself, was an understanding of the context of these works, was an understanding of where these works were placed in a highly deliberated exhibition that is attempting to show 20 years of China in the throes of globalization, which is itself an awful, often brutal story. But Phil, maybe you can talk to the the significance of the three works are certainly perhaps the one that elicited the, the greatest online ire, which was Sun Yun and Pumyo's uh, 
video documentation. If I might just add, there was also, and to this day, a persistent misunderstanding that we were staging live events of uh, the uh, dogs that cannot touch each other or the case study of transference. The amount of fake news around this was impressive. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one thing to understand is that this video, which in the end ended up causing so much controversy, um, was not something put somewhere uh, as a kind of random provocation. It was actually the, the last piece you would have seen in the exhibition. It would have been in Tower 7 uh, at the top of the ramps off to the side. You know, come through our entire narrative, walked your way up. And it's what we, we've been calling the coda. So you walk into this room and suddenly you're you're out of this ramp six, which is the section where you talk we talk about um, alternatives and activism circa 2008, where we're looking at these kind of utopian projects and sometimes dystopian projects by various artists and collectives. Uh, and you walk into this clean space and you look up and there's this frieze of panels by the artist Gudashin around you. And these panels in a very austere Chinese font that recalls the signs you see outside of every government building, uh, red on white, uh, repeat this sequence of sentences that begin something like, we have killed people, we have killed children, we have beaten people blind, we have uh, beaten people's faces, and we on and on. We have eaten people, which again people. is the allusion to Lu Xun's Mad Men's Diary of 1918. So it's an extremely disturbing piece composed of nothing but... Um, a very few Chinese characters. Now, that piece was originally shown in Beijing in 798 at Galleria Continua in May of 2009, an exhibition which spanned the 20th anniversary of, of Tiananmen, which is where our, our exhibition begins. In the gallery next door, Tang, you had a show by Sun Yuan and Peng Yu called Freedom that consisted of a fire hose hanging from the top of the gallery and a sealed off space so that you looked in through a porthole and once in a while the water come on at full blast and the, the, the hose would randomly fling itself around and spray this water at ev in every direction um, maybe it was beating back protesters uh, but they called it freedom it was it was also kind of unrestrained will going in various directions we thought for a long time about trying to pair these two works because I, as someone who lived in Beijing in this period, just found it incredibly poignant that at the moment of the 20th anniversary of Tiananmen, a period of intense political censorship and scrutiny, the period during which Ai Weiwei was kicked off the Chinese internet um, when his blog was taken down, that you had these two exhibitions which were confronting uh, the political situation in an extremely direct but also extremely artful way. Um, and, and so we thought to end with this juxtaposition would be just an incredibly powerful. Now, every exhibition planning process involves all kinds of considerations, practical and otherwise. And our idea evolved and we decided instead of presenting a version of freedom, which you can imagine, you know, building a hydraulic uh, pump we did and spraying it. fire hoses throughout the Guggenheim on the seventh floor might have been a bit beyond... Uh, even the Guggenheim's capacity <laughs> to produce miracles. Yeah. And so, uh, but we, we felt Sun Yuan and Peng Yu are extremely important artists of this period. They are kind of at the far end of a continuum of artists who emerged in the late 90s around this cluster of post-sense sensibility that we addressed directly a bit further down the ramps. 
a movement known for its use of radical materials, a movement that has a, a refracted, but I think still quite direct connection to the YBAs. Um, they were they were sort of seeing information and filtering it. So if, if freeze happened uh, with two E's at the very beginning of the late 80s, early 90s, this is sort of late 90s in China. Figures like Chiu Jijie are, and his then partner Wu Meichun are sort of filtering this information. Um, and these artists are reacting to this sort of next wave urbanization that's happening, uh, the onset of the internet and a, a, a sudden sense that life is quite disposable. And this led to quite a radical outpouring of art making in the late 90s. And Sun Yuan and Peng Yu come, come from that moment exactly. So this, this piece, it's a video that comes from a staged situation that happened in a private museum, the Today Art Museum, not the current building, but the original building in Beijing in 2003, at the time of the first Beijing Biennial, which was this very short-lived moment of kind of an international outlook for the Beijing art, art scene. It's actually the moment where, for example, the space that UCCA now inhabits uh, was first installed with an exhibition. I believe it's actually the moment when Mr. Ullens came to Beijing and saw the space and decided he wanted to set up a museum there. But all kinds of great works and works that have lived for a long time were produced for that that moment, fall of 2003. I was I had just left weeks earlier to go back and start my graduate studies, so I, I missed these shows. But had I still been in Beijing, I'm sure I would have been in that room. And what the artists did, I mean, I think Ben Davis does a pretty good job of of explaining um, the sort of sequence of events. But they were really trying to recreate uh, almost like a prize fight kind of scenario. Um, so there were trainers. There was a very sort of ceremonial arrival. And there were essentially rounds of running on these non-motorized treadmills and sort of sessions of being rubbed down and given water in between them. Each lasted seven minutes. Um, I mean, these are facts that that are easily available. But just to, to contextualize, you know, the, the next work that Sun Yuan Peng Yu made was called Contend for Hegemony. And it involved three human boxers of different weight classes, unevenly matched and put in a ring together. And they form and break alliances. Um, as they pummel each other. And that involved actual violence among humans. But in any case, the, the decision to position this video in this location, there was a reference to the fact that there were these two shows that had been next to each other at this key moment that kind of ends our story. And there was also a curatorial decision to juxtapose an artist from the first generation in the show, an artist duo from the sort of youngest generation in the show, both addressing this kind of the ambivalent latent violence beneath these changes. I'm curious about when you decided to include this work in the show, if you thought about how people might respond and how you would contextualize that at the time, because I think there has been some criticism of, of the response and the, and the context provided by the museum in this, in this debate. We were so focused the museum on presenting theater of the world correctly, legally, with the top veterinarian, with the top experts in the city who work with all the other museums, including the Natural History Museum and various zoos um, that present live animals in captivity for um, exhibition and education of one kind or another. 
we as a museum were so focused on getting that presentation right and sensitive while still honoring the artist's original metaphoric intent of the theater of the world as a live arena that we did not consider that video documentation of performances that took place 24 or 17 years ago would elicit this kind of response. We also didn't anticipate that the New York Times preview would focus, coincidentally or not, on the three works in the show that deal most directly with the incorporation of live animals. This exhibition has 157 works by 71 artists. It is covering a period of Chinese uh, history that is in the throes of globalization. It turns out, as the events uh, unfolded, that this show turns out to be as much about China in the throes of globalization as it is a reflection of America in the throes of anti-globalization. What I really want to help all of us understand is that these very difficult decisions that the curators made were made in very close consultation with the artists. And as the museum was increasingly over this intense weekend facing impossible choices, the artists were incredibly philosophical. And at one point, we understood through our conversations with the artists that we could turn the absence of these works, the inactivity of these works, the shell of these works into content, into very powerful statements. And in each of the three cases, we worked with the artists to rewrite our own curatorial statement about the importance of these works and why would they were selected in the first place for where they were selected in the narrative of the show. And we worked with each artist in how they would like to present their work. Huang Yongping is presenting the panopticon and the bridge devoid of animals, but with a statement that becomes a powerful new introduction to the exhibition that brings us right up to the reflection of our of our own times. Xu Bing decides to present his video, Dark, with an artist statement that refers to a kind of Taoist sage saying, how could you possibly know the pleasure of fishes? And how could you possibly therefore know the pleasure of pigs. So Yuan and Pungyo chose not to write an artist statement, but have presented their work exactly where it was intended in Tower 7 as the last piece in the show, frozen on its first screen, dogs that cannot touch each other. So it is live and agitated. As a, as a title, a textual title, which weirdly echoes the text going on sort of above in the Gouda piece we just discussed. We curatorially, working very closely with the artists, understood that this could actually add a layer of meaning and urgency and relevancy to the exhibition project. One of the first people I spoke to um, was Ai Weiwei. And he said, this will make your show stronger. This is what your show is all about. We took confidence from the artists who actually Huang Yongping said, you're making the right decision. He's been through this before. In two other iterations of uh, Theater of the World at the Pompidou Center and at Vancouver, 
uh, the work was closed down. We thought we had taken precaution. It was shown to great joy of children, as Kathy Halbright told us, when it was shown at the Walker Art Center and at Mass MoCA, where Joe Thompson and Susan Cross thought it was one of the most metaphoric, uh, complex, synthetic works of art that they have ever shown at Mass MoCA or at, at, at the Walker. And we believed that New York would be the right venue um, to introduce the themes metaphorically and viscerally um, to the exhibition. Phil, one thing I want to ask you is, you know, if these works were presented in China, do you think that there would have been the same level of controversy? I mean, are are these works of art in some ways controversial wherever they're shown, even for people who are steeped in the context? I, I think that certainly um, when Sun Yuan and Peng Yu did this original performance in 2003, there, and as in all of their work, there is a certain uh, urge toward visceral provocation, let's call it. I mean, that's something that's kind of part and parcel of their practice. Aside from that, I think that one thing that this incident has sort of proven is that I think different localities operate with different sets of concerns and sensitivities. And I'm not sure that uh, they'd be articulated in the same way in, in the Beijing context as they are here in New York. I also want to remind our listeners that Sun Yuan and Peng Yu were one of the seven artists shown last November in the Robert H. and Ho Family Foundation Chinese Art Initiative show, Tales of Our Time, curated by our own Ho Han Ru, our exhibition co-curator of Theater of the World, and also uh, Xiao Yu Wang. That work was a German robotic arm that was reprogrammed to uh, perform an equally violent but completely useless act of sweeping under uh, pools of red viscous material that is a clear allusion to blood and violence. That work got more hits on our video YouTube than any other work in the history of the Guggenheim. But again, as Phil has alluded to, their subject is violence, whether it's motorized, computerized, robotic violence, or uh, displaced through the incorporation of live animals who actually um, were not hurt during the performance. This is their subject. Mm. You mentioned before kind of impossible choices. And I'm wondering if you can kind of elaborate on what you meant by that. What what were you working through? What were you faced with? And, and there's a whole other side of the conversation that's saying, you know, removing these works is censorship or bad for free speech. So I'm just wondering if, if that was another factor, if there was this other force, this other pull in another direction that you were also balancing. There were many, many forces, but the uh, single most significant force that our director and uh, security team faced was direct and violent threats. Of, Did you, I mean, can you specify any I, of I cannot. And I wasn't necessarily part of those discussions. It was an institutional decision. I think in a world after Charlottesville um, and in a space as precarious as the Guggenheim Museum, which is a unlike any other architectural space that was not built for crowds of 7,000 people a day, which is what we've been getting, our director had to take into account the security and safety of the visitors, the staff, our guards, the artists who were being also 
directly targeted and the curators. Uh, this was an institutional choice, not made lightly. This is uh, a painful, painful decision that will be a case study. Not only is this exhibition branded and scarred for its life um, with these events, but this institution, and I think all museums at this time, will look to this as a case study of the impossible choices that public institutions face when they have to balance public safety against complete dedication and commitment to the artist's work and to the curatorial um, freedom of their educational mission. I think in our case, we were guided by the artists. We were supported. We were encouraged in a way by the artists to make this choice um, and guided by our confidence, even if it's going to be lost on most people, that the absence of these works becomes a powerful presence and a reflection on our own times. And I'd just like to supplement that there was one particular moment in the coverage, uh, sort of the New York Times follow-up story on the decision to pull the works that contains a, really a glaring inaccuracy that we've been unable to have them correct uh, based on what we feel to be a linguistic misunderstanding. But just to specify, the artists were fully aware of how this process was evolving, uh, albeit quickly, um, and were in direct conversation with us before any announcement was made. You're referring to the artist who said that they hadn't heard about it. Until yeah, they were I mean, called. that's just not true. That is false. <laughs> categorically, and you Categorically can, false. And we have an, uh, a timeline and we have a statement by the artist uh, refuting the New York Times in that particular case. It was a misunderstanding. We, we've spoken a lot about the context of the works, and I, I think you've both done a, a good job kind of situating them both within the show and within the history of China. But there's obviously the phrase which has kind of come to define this whole debate, which we haven't really mentioned, which is animal cruelty. And I'm wondering, I mean, I just want to put it to both of you, how you think about that subject, that allegation in relationship to the works that you put on view, because, you know, it, it would be remiss if we didn't directly address what I think is the, the animating kind of cry of those who find the work objectionable. I'm not going to comment on that. Though, though I will say one thing, uh, um, we fully respect, obviously, because we um, listened to the petition and we took action because of the petition and the violence and the threats that were elicited by that petition. The Guggenheim is absolutely committed, and we're already in discussion with our museum colleagues across the city and beyond, and we're in discussion with the National Center Against Censorship. We're in discussion with PEN America to use this opportunity for a very needed debate. And we are looking forward to weeks and months and possibly years of internal discussion, as well as public programming to address uh, the very issues that we're raising today and that you're wishing to raise. Yeah, that, that's one question that I also wanted to ask you, which is that in terms of the grander potential of this discussion, this controversy, whatever you'd like to call it, I mean, is there a way that you think that this can be channeled towards future exhibitions, towards a broader discussion? I'm just wondering what, what you know, 
you've been thinking absolutely about? and that's an institutional decision um that's a decision that's going to be taken up broadly by the curatorial department it's going to be taken up uh specifically uh under the leadership of nancy specter who's deeply engaged in the role of the museum in as a public forum of debate and social justice and i think uh the director is taking it up with his colleagues both at amd um with cmom um we're living in different times we're living in in darker times uh we're living at a time when opinions can be made without access to or even interest in understanding their context and can grow at a rate um, and at a velocity and at a tenor that is unprecedented in the in history of public institutions. Is the level of controversy and uproar and even threats related to this work singular in the Guggenheim's history? Uh, yes, I'm told that the threats we were getting are unprecedented in the ex- in the museum's history. And all museums and all public institutions, especially, you know, over the last two decades, have uh, equipped themselves and trained their staffs and been in close contact with their local law enforcement uh, experts uh, to advise in um, in different situations. Um, and the decision in this case was uh, for public safety. I also just want to circle back to one concern that people have raised and that you mentioned, which is that. Uh, not enough context was provided. And I, I find this particularly troubling just because you know, this, this show is the result of years of scholarship. And I think anyone who reads the catalog will find extended entries on each of these award- works, as well as longer essays that discuss the entire period. And there's the context of the show itself, which was not available to anyone at the time uh, that this all happened. So I, I just... I think that's an easy critique to make, and it's well, it's a it's a facile critique to make, um, and ignores you know this this very real context that kind of is at the heart of this show. Yeah, I mean, in the age of the internet, how do you think about providing context for a controversial work of art? I mean, I imagine many people who sign the Change.org petition will never pick up the catalog. Yeah, I mean that's fair. They don't. I mean that's fair. I mean, this show is not for everyone. Um, and, and I think if we've learned anything, we've learned that there is, there are publics beyond our imagination that we do need to reach out to. And I think that is part of the, the possibility that we can learn as a culture and as a museum culture from this series of events that we no longer are serving our art world constituency our membership, our our community of artists, or even the art tourists who flood our museums, whether it's the Metropolitan Museum of Art with its um, attendance of 7 million a year, or whether it's UCCA in Beijing with its attendance of a million a year, we now have a whole other kind of audience. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's an opportunity for for all of us to educate each other. But it does raise very serious concerns about curatorial freedom and about context. And to I want to read Huang Yongping's statement in answer to your question about if it's possible or not to provide context in a world where online opinion can be amplified at such velocity and such speed. I'd like to read Huang Yongping's artist statement that is now part of the presentation of the work, Theater of the World, in the opening gallery at the Guggenheim. 
he writes, it is said that more than 700,000 people are opposed to this work that involves living animals. But how many of those people have really looked at and understood this work? Modern society, news media, online media, has engendered a new servility that makes people parrot each other. Everyone can express their views, but unfortunately, their views are too often mere repetitions of others' views. And to repeat another's views, this work recalls Thomas Hobbes' War of All Against All, or more precisely, War of All Insects Against All Insects. Nevertheless, people tend to ignore the structure of this work, the structure of the cage, the carefully calculated the carefully calculated size of the wire mesh, the independent drawers which surround on all sides, the open space in the center, the full-spectrum lighting. Is this not a miniature landscape of a civilized nation in contrast to natural savagery as described by Hobbes? Well, thanks so much to... Phil and Alexandra for sitting down with us again. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. We'll see you next time. Our producer this week, as always, editorial associate Abigail Kane. The music is by Broke for Free. <laughs>